Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to storing what's important, you need solutions you can count on. And when it comes to long-lasting storage and organization, you can count on the Home Depot. Right now, you can save on durable storage solutions like the HDX 27-gallon Tough Tote. Its heavy-duty construction can handle any storage job you throw at it. And its reinforced lockable lid protects everything you can throw in it. Store more. Save more. Shop in-store and online at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Live at the Apollo transformed James Brown from King of the Chitlin Circuit to the Godfather of Soul. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis of WBEZ and Columbia College. Coming up on Sound Opinions, we dissect James Brown's classic album Live at the Apollo with writer R.J. Smith. And later, we'll review new records by Neil Young and rising hip-hop star Kendrick Lamar. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. I'm just walking down that track I've got tears in my eyes Trying to That is Terry Callier with a track called 900 Miles from his 1968 debut album, The New Folk Sound of Terry Callier. Callier died recently at the age of 67 of throat cancer, left behind one of the most influential bodies of work in the folk and jazz canon, beginning with that album. It was actually recorded in 1964. He was ahead of his time in many ways. When you think about the records that were coming out in the late 60s and early 70s with a similar sound, the work of Richard Thompson in Fairport Convention, or Bill Withers, or even Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. They all have bits and pieces of what Callier was already into in the early and mid-60s, that combination of traditional folk and blues and bringing it together with one of his biggest influences, John Coltrane and the jazz movement. He was working with a double bass lineup in addition to his acoustic guitar and improvising words and sounds around that. In the early 70s, he recorded a series of really great records, beautifully orchestrated, but didn't really have a huge amount of success with him. Had to go away for about 20 years, became a computer programmer to support himself and his family. Like you said, Greg, the first record sat around for four years, but there has been a huge rediscovery of him in recent years. Well, the fact that artists like uh, Beth Orton were picking up on him in in the late 90s and this whole freak folk movement with the Vander Banhart, uh, Michael Kiwanuka, that new artist out of the U.K., all citing Callier as an influence, had a great deal to do with the fact that Callier got back into the music in the late 90s and his music was revived. But you cannot do any better than the stuff he recorded, especially in the early 70s. If there's one Callier record to own, it's his masterpiece, What Color is Love, from 1973. And here's a track from it. You're going to miss your Candyman, a reinterpretation of the traditional blues, I Know You Rider, with that jazzy feel to it on Sound Opinions. (laughs) ¶¶ 
You're going to miss your candy man in honor of Terry Callier, dead at the age of 67. Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the unmistakable yelp of the hardest working man in show business, James Brown. I'll Go Crazy, that song, is from Brown's 1963 album, Live at the Apollo, recorded 50 years ago in Harlem. A transformative album in Brown's career, in soul and funk music, and in music history in general. In 1962, Brown was an A-list African-American singer who had some hits, Please, 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 Try Me, but he really wasn't known to white audiences. Live at the Apollo changed that. It catapulted him from the segregated Chitlin circuit into the national spotlight. It was also groundbreaking musically. Brown was no longer playing straight-ahead doo-wop and soul. In 62, he was experimenting with funk. We're going to honor the record and celebrate its anniversary by giving Live at the Apollo a much-deserved classic album dissection. This is when Jim and I go deep and explore an album's history, sound, and influence. And we're going to get some help from music writer R.J. Smith. Now, R.J.'s definitive Brown biography came out a little earlier this year. It's called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. R.J., welcome to Sound Opinions. Hey, it's great to be here. This phenomenon that was James Brown, one of the greatest cultural figures of the 20th century, the myth was that he was born dead. This is the story he kept telling about himself. Born destitute, born extremely poor. The young James Brown was not a promising figure, right? There was no way to tell if this guy was going to be a guy who reinvented music 20, 30 years later. No, that's right. There wasn't any reason to believe he'd be alive. (laughs) You know, I shouldn't be laughing. There's no reason to believe he would be alive or on the streets or, or doing anything because he was born into intense poverty. He was born in 1933 into maybe the 17th or 18th century in Backwood, South Carolina, walked with his dad as a boy to Augusta, Georgia, when he was about six, and there grew up, you know, in his aunt's house of prostitution. It was a terrible existence, and he had to fight and fight and fight for everything he had. Now, the nexus of gospel music and soul, gospel turning into soul, that was a huge influence on young James as a musical figure. What was the role that the church and gospel music played in uh, young James's life? James Brown has a really interesting, and I bet not particularly unique, relationship to gospel and the church. He studied it and listened to gospel music intensely. He went to a lot of different churches in Augusta, and he he took notes on all of them. I don't think he was deeply religious. I don't think he would have said at that time in his life he belonged to one church, but he was studying the way that singers and preachers communicated and breaking it down and incorporating it into his daily life. I love the way you put it in the book, R.J. Brown was steeped in gospel. He just didn't go to church much. (laughs) (laughs) In the street, in a crowd, in your home. So gospel music's in the air. He uh, obviously loves it in many ways, the delivery. He studied the mannerisms. What about the flamboyance? There was a lot of different influences coming into that as well, the hairstyle and the way he presented himself to the public on stage. Oh, yeah. To backtrack for a second about studying, James Brown, he grew up in an abusive household where his dad was violent. Uh, In his Aunt Honey's brothel, there were lots of violent people. And he had that classic abused child's ability to gauge the emotional weather of the room around him. And that's something that would come in very handy later on as a performer. In terms of the hair and the style, 
Yet he was studying Little Richard and studying the preachers who had their hair piled way up high. <laughs> he was not a tall guy, so he needed hair that, that would add a couple more inches onto him along with the heels he was wearing. One of the sections in your book that I love the most is when he steps in to Little Richard's band, and the, and the idea was they're, they're going to pass him off as Little Richard. He's, he's going to tour with the band. <laughs> little Richard's off in L.A. recording music, and they go, you just take R- Little Richard's band on, out on tour, and you impersonate Little Richard. <laughs> it doesn't sound possible. Little Richard was on the verge of becoming... Little Richard, superstar, uh, and he just blew town, making Georgia uh, for the West Coast, and left his manager with a lot of dates to fill. <laughs> so, you know, he, manager also was managing this young kid named Brown, and he put him in front of Little Richard's amazing live band, The Upsetters, and took them on the road. Little Richard had a few records out. He wasn't a huge success yet. People might have known some of his music. They probably didn't know too much what he looked like. So Brown could usually kind of get away with it. And he also had a new goal now. He wanted people to know that he could outdo Little Richard on the stage, and he was better than the guy they thought they were coming to see. Mm. You talk about the band a lot in the book, RJ, and a series of bands. This Chitlin Circuit training that they went Mm. through was a huge part of that. So, you know, you go from 56 when he has his first major hit, Please, 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 to the Apollo show in 62, there was a lot of training in between that, getting that band up to shape, getting that show together, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was about the live show for James Brown. You know, he loved having hits. He needed them to just to keep on the road. But he wasn't making a lot of money from the hits. The hits, the records tended to be like calling cards. You know, you could get to the next town if there was a new song that the audience wanted to hear You might be the one show they were going to hear that weekend, that week, that month, people with not a lot of disposable income. You know, you better have a new show. You better show them something you didn't have the last time you were in town. So that was the Chitlin circuit. You had to perform. You had to have new material. You had to really be theatrical on the stage. You know, RJ, the Chitlin venues tend to get romanticized from this point in time. Mm. Tell us, though, what were these places that he was playing really like? What they smell like? What they taste like? Oh, (laughs) well, the Apollo Theater was not the Chitlin Circuit. The Chitlin Circuit were uh, tin shacks. They were tobacco barns. They might have been swimming pools that had been drained out, and they had a bandstand put in at the deep end. (laughs) (laughs) They were any place that uh, had some room that was allowed to have black people gather in public to, to hear some entertainment. In the South, that's a big deal, not easy to come by. They were fly by night, you know, desperate places and and fire traps. They were Mm. not uh, picnic spots. And Harlem's Apollo Theater in 62 when Brown got there. Well, the Apollo Theater is sort of the next thin layer above the Chitlin Circuit, this great league of African-American halls, theaters, like the Regal in Chicago, of course, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the Howard in Baltimore and D.C., the Apollo was the crown jewel. The Apollo is a beautiful building and still is today. And it was the place that somebody like James Brown or Ray Charles or Mary Wells, Louis Jordan, just aspired to, to headline at. Now, how did he get to the point where he could headline the Apollo? We're talking about 1,500 people, series of shows. I mean, James Brown was obviously pointing to these dates in October of 62 is is extremely important, a big moment for him, to the point where he wanted to record the show, right, against the wishes of his record label president, Sid Nathan, who thought, you know, it was a bad idea. (laughs) Yeah. Explain what James was thinking and why Sid Nathan thought this was such a horrible idea. James saw really clearly, well, he always wanted to be huge. He wanted to be, you know, Sinatra or... Gary Cooper big. He wanted to be in the movies. He wanted to be everywhere. James also saw clearly that a place like the Apollo Theater was likely to be as good as it got for him, uh, by and large, unless something radical happened, unless he found a way. His show was his art form. 
the singles were important and great and, and sold the show, brought people into the hall, but his show was his thing. And he believed correctly that if America could hear that show, America would want to hear him. And, and it transformed him from being A-list, top-of-the-line African-American star playing largely African-American venues to being a great American star. Nathan didn't think this was such a hot idea. It wasn't going to work. What, what's the point? Why do you want to record a live album, which was not yeah. all that common at that time? I mean, Sid Nathan didn't really... He was the old-school, colorful, loud-suited, wide-tied, chubby, short, white guy with a cigar in his <laughs> mouth all the time. This is a, a uh, you might say, a discussion of how King Record Company is to be run Unfortunately, you or other people may disagree with me 100%, but somebody has to be the chief, and I am elected as the chief. Singles paid his bills, and he didn't understand why would you put an album out with a bunch of songs that we'd already released as as singles. You know, the, the audience wasn't getting anything new. It was the old stuff they'd already heard. He didn't press a whole lot of albums. Any In any case, he pressed like a thousand or so. And then if those sold, only then could you pry the money from his hands <laughs> to put out some more. Mm. He was a tight with a buck, like James Brown. So how does Live at the Apollo finally get released? Mm. So he records this album, and he's got the tape, which he paid for himself to, to, to make, and they take it back to King Records, and, and Sid Nathan still doesn't want to put it out. <laughs> so James Brown had a couple copies pressed up on his own. When the band was going from town to town, he had DJ friends in every town, and he would slip them a copy of the record, and they'd play it that night or the next night, and people would start to call and say, we love this. What is this? Where can we get this? And the DJs started calling up King Records and kind of forced Sid Nathan's hand. When when they were saying, we love this record, we want to play it, but, our, but, we, but it's not out, mm-hmm. um, that got Sid off his dime and finally got him to release the album. So he had a vision about what the album could do in an era that really wasn't about the album. James Brown said, no, I, you need to hear my whole thing in this long form. And it sounds like from your research that some of these DJs were in fact playing the entire album on their, on their <laughs> night shifts at these prominent R&B stations around the country. You know, the thing about it, it's so seamless. You, you, you drop the needle down on the beginning of side one, and where do you take it off? You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's very few obvious spots where you can just lift it off and, and go into another tune. So, you know, it was a great uh, record for DJs to put on when they had to go to the bathroom. It, it was also just, uh, you know, it was a different kind of experience. And it, it changed the radio from being a collection of different kinds of songs and different performers to being a whole lot of James Brown, which James Brown liked a lot. We'll continue looking back at the James Brown classic Live at the Apollo in just a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Greg and I will review Neil Young's new album with Crazy Horse and the much-buzzed release from Compton rapper Kendrick Lamar. What you think of, but I know I know love. You're gonna miss me out of mind. The love sick soul. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and today we're conducting a classic album dissection of James Brown's landmark 1963 album, Live at the Apollo. This is the album that brought not just James Brown, but the James Brown live experience to national audiences. Earlier this year, music writer R.J. Smith completed a major biography of Brown called The One, The Life and Music of James Brown, and he's with us now. Brown recorded Live at the Apollo on an historic night in Harlem 50 years ago, and it's a groundbreaking record in a few ways. As we've said, not many artists were making live albums in 1962, but there's a lot of musical innovation on this record as well. R.J., you refer to that in your book's title, The One. What is The One? Well, the one is, uh, on one level, it's the emphasis on that first beat of the measure, that he wanted the band to hit harder. The one was also a way for him to stage manage a show. He was making it up as he went along, giving the band constant hand signals or audibles like a quarterback. He was telling them instantly, you know, this song's not working. We got to switch to uh, try, try Me or we got to go to a rocker. The ballads aren't playing. So he's constantly sending signals. He's doing things, running from one side to the other. And he's always using that first beat as a way to say, when we change, we're going to change on the one. As you'll hear on Live at the Apollo, the beat keeps going. It might slow down, but the beat's still there. And and the changes tend to happen on that first beat from song to song. It's this amazing symphonic suite or something. Why do you do me like you do? You made me Now, RJ, one thing I'm sure you, I was surprised you didn't touch on. October 62, this weekend, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis. The world is going to end, possibly, at any moment. How does that play into the show that Brown delivers in Harlem? Oh, my gosh. It must have played into it hugely. I don't know that Brown ever spoke about it, but it had to have been there. It was there on everybody's minds. The world might end. Where are we going to be tomorrow? Are we going to be doing what we did last night? And here was a show where nothing else mattered but this moment. It was all about being there with this amazing star who made you forget about everything else. And all that existed was the now. So, yeah, it was a rich moment. Your love I don't mind What you think of But I know I know love You're gonna miss me The show itself was just on another level in terms of what was going on in R&B and soul at the time, RJ. Describe the differences between what Brown was doing and what everybody else in R&B and soul was doing in 1962. Well... One thing he was doing was when he played the Apollo, he played with his own band. They had a a fine, show-busy, classic house band that backed all the other artists and that made them all sound sort of similar, which was good if you were packaging a whole evening of entertainment, but terrible if you were a band leader, a James Brown, and wanted to stand out from the crowd. He had an amazing band. That made a big difference. He just knew how to read an audience and feel what they were feeling and to know what they wanted 
almost before they, they knew themselves. Now I want you to know I'm not singing a song for myself now. I'm not singing a song only for myself now. I'm singing it for you too. When I say something that makes you feel good inside When I say that little thing I said that little part that might sting you in your heart now I want to hear you scream I want to hear you say, ow! He was a dancer, he was a presence, he was an actor on a stage and he was a singer and a band leader and he put together this whole show it unfolded in real time, and no two shows were alike. Let's go back, RJ, to that word singer. <laughs> mm. <laughs> you wax rhapsodic in the book about <laughs> the scream. It is an yeah. ugly sound, always has been. Brown was throwing ugly all over the <laughs> Apollo. Mm. I feel so good, I want to scream. I want to scream. I feel just like I want to scream. What's the magic of that scream? Because a lot of people, you know, it is easy to parody James Brown. Yeah, yeah. And, and as his career goes on and his voice gets more afraid, that, that definitely becomes truer. He never had a beautiful voice. You know what he was great at? He was a short guy. He wasn't an athletic build. He wasn't conventionally handsome. He was amazingly dark-skinned for a star, uh, even on the black circuit, that all these things were unlikely... He knew how to make the hand he was dealt the winning hand. He, he was short like Napoleon was short. <laughs> it didn't, didn't <laughs> yeah. hold him back. But, you know, he didn't do it alone. You never hesitate not only to give the drummer some, but to give mm. everybody in the band some. And you've called Lewis Hamlin, Brown's musical director, the key player on Live at the Apollo. What did mm. he bring to the party? He, he really, I think, was the great unsung hero of, of that night and that record. He was the music director, sort of the band leader. He was the guy that understood the importance of of watching the man as he performed on stage. I don't know that Brown even was consciously saying, watch me because when I dip my shoulder, that means I want you to go into uh, something faster or whatever. He, but he just did it and expected the band to understand, and he'd find them when they didn't. Well, Hamlin, Hamlin was really well-versed in the language of James Brown. <laughs> he communicated what Brown wanted to the rest of the band, and that made him incredibly valuable. You really hear it in that one track, Lost Someone, this 11-minute mm-hmm. song that's really the centerpiece of the album. Ah. Oh, A million to one Ten thousand people Brown isn't just playing the song, he's playing the band, he's playing the audience, I mean, which is responding in kind. That's when you realize this is why he wanted to make a live album. There's no way you can contain what happens in that song in a three-minute single. Yeah. That, that's that's an amazing, you know, it's like 11 minutes, and on the original vinyl, it was the last song on the first side, and it continued on as the first song on the second side. <laughs> it It is all about him talking to the audience, the audience talking back. There's, as you say, there's amazing call and response. You don't have to tell me, but I believe somebody over here alone somewhere. At one moment, you know, in the 11 minutes, the the bass player kind of wanders off, and then the guitar player wanders off with him. Kind of the chordal underpinnings of the song get a little lost. And Brown just says, uh, he's preaching, and he's preaching. He says, you know, we all get a little lost sometimes. I got something I want everybody to understand. Uh, you 
You know we all make mistakes sometimes And all the way we can correct our mistakes We got to try one more time He's talking to the band, he's talking to the audience, he's just talking. And then he's got these these really tight medleys where he's going from one track to another in no time at all. The changes are incredibly fast and incredibly dexterous. Was this all on the fly? How much of this was rehearsed and how much of this was absolutely in the moment where the band had no idea where he was going to go next? I think they had some set things, like some traveling music, you know, some music that would get them from one song to the next. And it, that, that music might be the last hit, you know, maybe an instrumental hit or, uh, or that kind of thing. It's also, you know what, it's a little unclear to me. My sense is that um, the, the engineer, after he got the recordings, uh, is probably doing some chopping out you know, maybe moments when Brown is dancing on the stage or Brown is doing his cape act or theatrical things are happening that we can't see in our living room playing this album. So it's a little hard to tell how much Brown is editing on the stage and how much an engineer or somebody's editing afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned play and you mentioned the cape act. We've got to touch on that because this whole night was something of a theatrical production as well as a musical one. I mean, it can't be denied. So now, ladies and gentlemen, it is start time. Are you ready for start time? Thank you, and thank you very kindly. It is indeed a great pleasure to present to you at this particular time, national and international known as the hardest working man in show business, man that's saying, I'll go crazy. Try me. You've got the power. Think. If you want me, I don't mind. You know, right from the opening bell when you've got Fats Gonder coming out there giving that iconic introduction to the end with the, with the Cape Act. Talk about that whole death resurrection bit that, that Brown is going through in, in this show. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, the Fats Gonder, that opening, that, that whole setup is just, it makes your heart race. <laughs> Amazing, Mr. Please Please himself, the star of the show... James Brown and the Famous Flame. The resurrection, you know, early 60s is when James Brown started using the the cape in his act. And usually it was in please, please, please. He would fall to his knees. He can't go on. The the power of the moment. He's given the audience everything he's got. He might die, you think, because he's (laughs) falling on the floor. Is he fainting? And of course his valets or the the famous flames come out and, you know, they pat him on the back like deacons in a church, you know, which is exactly (laughs) what they were at that moment. Mm -hmm. And and they say, you know, know, sir, sir, we got to get you out of here. And they try to get him to the wings and he walks with them. And then he breaks free and he comes back out and he sings some more and they, and they drape the cape over his shoulders, and it goes on and on and on. <laughs> it was overpowering theater, and it was a religious kind of event. You know, it's interesting to hear where James Brown's music is at this point, RJ. It's not quite funk yet, but you can definitely hear the shape of it starting to take place. You know, it's definitely yeah. steeped in the old soul doo-wop, the harmony singing that he sang on the street corner in those early tracks that he's playing on this record. By the end, when you get to Night Train, and what's interesting to me about the version of Night Train they play on the record is that it's not the version that was released as a single you know, earlier, it's a, they've reinvented the song already, and a lot of it's organized around Philia's kick drumming on, on that particular oh, song. Oh, yeah. Philia was a, a southerner from Florida with deep Louisiana roots, and he had that New Orleans style in his drum playing, that funky, 
new sound that was changing rock and roll, uh, changing rhythm and blues into rock and roll. It, it's not that old rhythm and blues shuffle. It's much steadier and faster. The beat's getting divided up to 16th notes, and that kick drum is guiding things. Yeah, it's a whole new language coming coming together, and, and it's fun. talked about live albums not really being popular in the early 60s, and Brown was a pioneer of that form. RJ, what did he learn making Live at the Apollo? Well, Brown loved ballads, and he was always a part of how he defined himself, especially, it seems like, in the early to mid-60s. But what he found when, when the album came out was that all audiences, white and black, they loved the ballads, but they were responding to the upbeat stuff. They were responding to the screaming and the energetic band. That that sort of got him to thinking, I suppose, about souping up the band. Oh, he still always played ballads because he liked them, but uh, keeping the energy level at a certain premium. So, RJ, here's this amazing record. It comes out, it lands like an A-bomb once people sort of figure out James is sort of reinventing the game. Fifty years later, we're still talking about it. What's its significance in not only James Brown's history as a leading 20th century music figure, but in music history in general, where does this record sit with 50 years hindsight? Well, I guess I'd give you a two-part answer. The first part would be, you know, the the music writer would say, you know, he invented the live album or really transformed it and made people care about it. For his career, it made him a radio star. You know, the the record was on the pop charts for like 66 weeks in a row when it finally came out. But on another level, you play that record now and it's still shocking. It's not the background. You can't be vacuuming your, your, your living room or doing the dishes or doing homework and listening to this thing. You're in that room screaming with James Brown. It is just an amazing piece of theater that pulls you in, and uh, you can't fight it. Well, we could just talk forever with R.J. Smith, but we wanted to focus on the Apollo. It's an incredible book, The One, The Life and Music of James Brown. R.J., thanks so much for talking to Sound Opinions. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. It's great talking to you. What are your thoughts on Live at the Apollo? Did you ever see James Brown live? Does the record still give you the chills? Share your comments at 888-859-1800. Coming up, Neil Young's Psychedelic Pill and the major label debut from rapper Kendrick Lamar. That's after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX.
Dreaming about the way things sound now Write about them in my book Worry that you can't hear me now Feel the time I took Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is the voice of Neil Young, a song called Driftin' Back, which opens up his 35th studio album, Psychedelic Pill. Greg, this is the second album he's given us with Crazy Horse this year. The first was a romp through the folk canon called Americana whenever Neil Young unites with Crazy Horse, the band he was meant to play with throughout his life, Frank Pancho San Pedro, bassist Billy Talbot, drummer Ralph Molina. It's news, and it's been 10 years. The last record was Greendale a decade ago. This is an epic work in every way. That little bit we played of Drifting Back is really just a snippet. On the record, it is 27 minutes and 36 seconds long. Two other epic tracks are almost 17 minutes each. This is a full-on romp. It covers three vinyl album sides, two full CDs. How is the music? Let's play a track, and then we'll get into our thoughts about it. This is a song called Walk Like a Giant, one of those almost 17-minute tunes from Psychedelic Pill by Neil Young and Crazy Horse on Sound Opinions. That is Walk Like a Giant from Neil Young and Crazy Horse, the new album, Psychedelic Pill. You know, Jim, when Neil Young starts playing with Pancho San Pedro, Billy Talbot, Ralph Molina, I feel like they're chipping away at this big block of music. They've been doing this for decades now. You go all the way back to, like, Down by the River or Like a Hurricane or Love and Only Love. They're like a genre unto themselves, and it's just like one long song. And in this case, with three tracks over 16 minutes long, it does feel like a really, really long song. There's a lot of flab on this record. He's looking back at his life. He's taking a lot of stock this year with the memoir and getting back together with Crazy Horse. To me, there's two reasons to own this album, these two longer songs. The Ramada Inn song where he's talking about a lifelong relationship with this woman. And and basically it's come down to we're in this room together and about the only thing we're sharing in common is this motel room anymore. And the track we just played, Walk Like a Giant, in which he is examining this question. Once he said it's better to burn out than to fade away, but what happens if you just fade away? He's about to turn 67. He's looking back and taking stock and thinking, did I accomplish what I hoped to? And in this track, he's basically saying, no, in some ways the dream that I had for myself and for my generation has not lived up to expectations, and he's kind of ticked off. Well, that's not new from Neil. Neil Neil, Neil bemoaning the loss of the 60s utopian tree-hugging ideal is not new. It's not new, but the idea here with the guitar playing, everything I think you love about Neil Young guitar playing is contained in this track. 
That said, I love that song and one or two others, but I don't love this album. It's a Burn It Neil Young record for me. I think I love Neil even more than you. This is something we wrestle about. You've gotten to interview him. He remains my great white whale. I love Neil Young. I hate this record. This is a trash it record. Now, Neil Young and Crazy Horse have done messy sprawl and wild self-indulgence before, and it's been brilliant. I love Neil Young, and I love psychedelic rock. When Neil Young tells me I'm getting a triple album called Psychedelic Pill, I want Crazy Horse to be what it has been at its best. This album fails because of a lack of ambition. Drifting back, Neil is in front of the mic improvising the stupidest lyrics he has ever given us. Nothing to me is new lyrically here, and what's worse, the music isn't strong enough. We've had half-hour songs from Neil Young before, but the central melodies of the tunes are not strong enough to carry these epic guitar solos. And what's more, this is a guy who could build a killer 10-minute guitar solo out of three notes. But these 10-minute guitar solos, one after another after another, meander and they don't go anywhere. I would love for this album to have been what I hoped it would be, but it's not. So it's a, it's a full-on trash it for me. I'm sorry, Uncle Neil. Not and grew around some people living their life in bottles. Granddaddy had the golden flash, backstroke every day in Chicago. Some people like the way it feels. Some people want to kill their sorrow. Some people want to fit in with the popular. That was my problem. I was in a dark room, loud tunes, looking to make a vow soon. That I'ma give up, filling up my cup. I see the crowd move, changing by the minute. And the record on repeat. Took a sip, then another sip. Then somebody said to me. Why you babysitting only two or three shots? I'ma show you how to turn it up a notch. First you get a swimming pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. Pool full of liquor, then you dive in it. That is Swimming Pools from the new Kendrick Lamar album, Good Kid, Mad City. Kendrick Lamar, born 25 years ago in Compton, California, initially came out with a series of mixtapes under the name K-Dot. Started recording when he was 16. Now, the first Kendrick Lamar mixtape didn't appear until 2010, but it was a good one. It got the attention of Dr. Dre, who started working with this artist. And after five mixtapes, the 2011 album Section 80 got a lot of notice. Later on in the year, appearing on records by people like Drake, The Game, and Tech 9 a lot of anticipation as a result for Good Kid, Mad City. He has been signed to Dre's Aftermath label, part of the whole Interscope empire, Here's a track from it called Good Kid from Good Kid Mad City by Kendrick Lamar on Sound Opinions. Your desire to fire bullets that stray Track a tire, just tell you I'm tired and ran away I should ask a choir, what do you require To sing a song that acquire me to have faith That's the record spin, I should pray For the record, I recognize that I'm easily prey I got eight alive yesterday I got animosity building, it's probably big It's a building, me jumping off of the roof It's me just playing it safe But what am I supposed to do when the topic is red or blue And you understand that I ain't But no, I'm accustomed to just a couple That look for trouble and live in the street with rank No better picture to paint than me walking from Bible study and called his homies because he had said he noticed my face from a function that took in place. They was wondering if I bang. Step on my neck and get blood on your Nike checks. I don't mind because one day you respect the good kid, Mad City. To hold me against my will, it was like a head-on collision that folded me standing still. I can never pick out the difference and grade a cop on the bill. Every time you clock in the morning, I feel you just want to kill all my innocence while ignoring my purpose to persevere as a better person. I know you heard this and probably in fear, but what am I supposed to That was Good Kid from Kendrick Lamar, his much-buzzed debut for a major label, Good Kid, Mad City. Greg, you can't talk about hip-hop coming out of Compton without saying that it's 20 years plus since N.W.A. put 
that L.A. suburb on the map and really chronicled the violence on the streets there. Kendrick Lamar is a troubling artist for me because he clearly has a vision musically and lyrically that exceeds the gangster cliches that have dominated hip-hop for the last 15 years. He writes almost like a novelist. There's obviously depth here, and he's aware of the cliches of gangster rap, but he also is pandering to them at times. The gratuitous use of negative words for women, sexual cliches, celebratory comments about violence and gangbanging, yes, He has said this is the screenplay for a movie in 12 acts. He is playing different characters. I know that. The voices are very authentic. But to me, it reeks of wanting to have your cake and eat it too. To have all this musical ambition and lyrical ambition, and then in the end to give us so much that could have come off a 50-cent record, in a year where we've gotten incredible records from LP and Killer Mike and Lupe Fiasco that are stretching the boundaries of hip-hop, I wanted more from Kendrick. I don't know what you're uh, talking about, Jim, because I think there's not a single cliche on this record. Every cliche he takes on, he upends. I'm talking about not only his lyrical ability, but his skills as an MC, the, the use of those multiple voices, the, the ability to play these different characters, you know, the hard-edged guy, the hazy drug taker, this comical character. He can be a total slacker one minute fantasizing about women, and he can be this cold gangbanger the next, but he's never playing to the stereotype. In fact, he's looking at the stereotype and upending it in track after track. Yeah, but chanting, damn, I got bitches, is still chanting, damn, I got bitches, even if he flips the script at the end. You have to look at the context of the entire song. It's not about isolating a single line. He is well aware of the cliches of the gangster rap genre. And what I like about this record is that he never plays into the stereotype on any one of these songs. He is wrestling with this whole legacy of Compton in this record. Very ambitious. 12-act play about growing up in Compton, also in his autobiography about growing up in Compton. The temptations of growing up as one of the boys in the hood versus the stabilizing influence of family. I mean, he's got actual family members on this record saying, Kendrick, you're screwing up. Yeah, and Kendrick, where are my dominoes? I know, know, but you don't think it's a little bit of wanting to have your cake and eat it too? When he performs live, he still resorts to all of the cliches. You know, know, your buddy Kurt Cobain uh, had the same issues. You know, people picking up on songs like Polly and and, and thinking they were about one thing when they were really about another. He, He is appealing to the deeper listener in all of us, saying you can't just listen to this record on a surface level. He's taken it to several levels. I think it's one of the best records of the year. Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City, buy it record for me. Well, we are significantly split on this one because I think it's a trash it record. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have an in-studio visit and performance from one of the greats of rock and roll, John Cale. Craig, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. Our assistant producer is Annie Minoff. Our intern is Griffin Waterman. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatia. He's the hardest working man in public radio. Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, guys. This is Brian from Naperville, Illinois, and I just finished listening to the Halloween show and enjoyed it very much. But I did want to comment on uh, Greg's final pick of Season of the Witch by Donovan. I just feel that for uh, for Halloween, you might want to dig back to the psychedelic... Uh, super band, I don't know if they were super, but uh, Vanilla Fudge uh, with their version of Season of the Witch.
I uh, remember as a teenager just being blown away at how heavy it had. I'd grown up as a little kid listening to Donovan and as blown away at how heavy the, the vanilla fudge version was. And uh, vanilla fudge, I think, just creates a nice Halloween sound. So uh, thanks. Enjoy the show. Talk to you later. Hey, this is Walt Jones over in Gary, Indiana. How could you guys leave out The Zombie Wolf by Frank Zappa? 300 years ago, I thought I might get some sleep. I stretched myself out on an antique bed, and my spirit did a midnight creep. And no, I'll never sleep no more. It seemed to me that it just ain't Thanks. This is um, Julian from Cheltenham, Pennsylvania again. I just thought of another song, Make Me a Vampire 2 Baby by Helium. Kind of an obscure alternative group from the 90s, but really an excellent example of kind of subverting the whole sexy vampire thing in a really interesting way by playing up the appeal of the more disturbing aspects of vampire lore in sung in this beautiful high soprano by Mary Timoney. Great song. Just putting it out there. Thank you. This is Angela calling from Brooklyn. I just listened to the Halloween Monster episode, and I can say that that is, without a doubt, the worst episode of sound opinions I have ever heard. Each each pick, even the ones with the callers, which weren't your fault, but every pick was, was worse than the last one. And I think the nader was Godzilla. Just atrocious. All right. Good night. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX. If you're looking for heavy-duty storage solutions, look no further than the Home Depot because we take the term heavy-duty very literally. Like our Husky 5-tier heavy-duty garage shelving unit. Each shelf has a weight capacity of 1,000 pounds when evenly distributed. That's a total of 2.5 tons of durable, no-nonsense, load-me-up-with-everything-you-got storage. Right now, save up to 25% on select heavy-duty storage solutions. Store more, save more. Shop in-store and online at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.